Hi, heroes. This is Darian, your resident string player. And this is Miranda, string player extraordinaire. <laughs> and this is Hero Talk, where we talk about real life and real women in music. is the founder, artistic director, and principal oboist of Rocco Chamber Orchestra, Alicia Lawyer. In 2015, she was one of Musical America's top 30 influencers and was later listed as one of Houston's top 50 most influential women. Alicia regularly presents her innovative and entrepreneurial ideas throughout the U.S. using Rocco as a case study for a community-specific orchestra building. Thank you for being here with us, Alicia Lawyer. Thanks for having me. Exciting. <laughs> I'm a he, I'm a hero. I'm excited. Yes. Oh, yay. <laughs> yes. Hero, hero. That's, I love it when people say hero, actually. Oh, really? Yes, I do. <laughs> it makes me very happy because that was like the whole point of the pun. And I was like, I hope people get it. <laughs> it should be like her. Oh, that's oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Some people put the dash, even when I'm emailing some people, they'll put like her, like in lowercase and then like a, a big capital O. It's funny how people... Yeah how people do it. I do like the capital H-E-R and the lowercase O. Everyone does it differently, which is totally fine, but I get a kick out of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you for being here with us. Um, we're just yeah. going to hop right in. And I know I've learned of you actually from my violin pro- professor at FSU, Corinne Stillwell. She said she went to school with you, which yes. you were at Juilliard as an oboist. Yes, yes, yes. That that is crazy. And I actually really admire that as someone who is a a performer and a classical instrument and then moved into administration. And I was wondering, as my first question for you is, how was that transition into arts admin after attending Juilliard for oboe performance? Well, I mean, I'm still an oboist, so I still am the principal oboe and do all the performing too. But um, I did it at Juilliard as well. I had a trio that I started that was in the, you know, the gigging part of it. It was called Trio Trouvert, and we did a ton of gigs. I have lots of stories. If you ever want to do a whole podcast, I have gig stories that will make you laugh. I, had a I mean, you're more than story. welcome to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> it's too long. I mean, they're very long. Like, I did a mafia wedding. We did a Buddhist monastery concert. We did, I mean, it was insane. But I already had done that at Juilliard um, while there, the business side, right? Having the contracts, having to fulfill all that. Um, And then I wound up when we were in Houston uh, the first time, I realized, you know, there really wasn't a lot of, there weren't no jobs. You have to wait for someone to die or retire in our field. And there are tenured jobs. Most people in the world, I would say 99% of the people do not know orchestral positions are lifetime tenured. Mm -hmm. I mean, incredibly wealthy people who support the symphony have no idea. So it's it's shocking to me that that is not known. And I think that's important that it's not known because um, then people don't understand the value of those positions, but that's another conversation. So when I was here with no opportunities with my husband's only gas job, I did things like um, I was a DJ for a radio station. I auditioned <laughs> for that and I could pronounce Buck Dehuda. So I didn't know what any of the buttons did, but I could <laughs> do that. And so just taking those opportunities that are almost tangential to the field is how I started to frankly slip into some of those roles and just took the opportunities that kind of like, and I think I told you about 
being Dora the Explorer in your life and adding those tools to your backpack as you're going through Mm -hmm. life that seem maybe off the beaten track, but are very tangential. Now I'm very comfortable, like podcast radio. I love Mm -hmm. live radio. It, It gives me an energy I don't have sometimes in recording. And so those kind of things were really important to add to my skill set. Then when we moved back to Houston, we moved abroad to France for a while um, and then came back to Houston. Again, no opportunities, but a few startups were in formation. So I was hired as oboist and personnel manager, and I started learning that side of it, of hiring and being on the union side for three different orchestras um, and oboists. So I saw startups, saw a little bit of them fundraising, saw a little bit of their ideas, had really good ideas, just couldn't quite get off the ground. And then my church renovated. And when I saw that renovation, I knew that that was our venue and there was a spot for us to be. And then I thought of people I wanted to play with instead of pieces to play. And it became a human first orchestra, which is really what everything is based on it, as you know. Um, so I guess I'm saying to you, I didn't go, let me be an admin. You know, I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't make that choice. I made small choices that were again, adding to my skill set that ultimately led me to be able to do this, if that makes sense. Yeah, it seemed very, like a very organic kind of Correct. entrance into starting Roco. <laughs> exactly. I, I definitely want follow-up podcasts for all of your rabbit holes. I heard like three podcast ideas <laughs> yeah. in like the last 20 seconds. I feel like I need to do, I need to do my own. I mean, I've started oh, yeah. to, I don't want to do a podcast as much as I just probably need to write at 3 a.m. because that's when I sit up in bed and think of these things but I mean just responding to two of the articles on the New York Times this past Sunday about the whole thing that happened with the Chike 5 at New Yorkville mm-hmm. and I won't go into that but the, <laughs> and the other idea of how AI is really making the human element in art valuable and that's something I've been actually preaching on for months and so there's a ton of those things that I think we need to be talking about um, but I don't have an interest in writing a book but or anything like that <laughs> but I just feel like there's so much dialogue that needs yeah. to happen in our field you can start yeah. a blog i would read it <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want a verbal i want a verbal blog i actually yeah. want a verbal it's and blog is a great word because it sounds like you're vomiting blog and <laughs> that's kind of what i do sometimes i feel like i do vomit words and so i gotta find a way to do it that is you know maybe i should do it like this that it's like mm-hmm. me talking while i'm driving Mm-hmm. Like instead of comedians in a car, it should just be <laughs> it should be ADD Alicia in the car. <laughs> that'd be, Actually, that'd be like really that entertaining. Yeah. Or just, I mean, aren't all musicians a little ADD and a little? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that could be your whole shtick. Yes. Like you're always recording yeah. from your car or like at three in the morning and like people will know that about you. Mm-hmm. I love that, actually. Look, you guys just actually not joking. I'm not joking. You have just solved my problem. We're not joking How either. I solve- want this to happen. <laughs> How do you solve the problem? Like, Alicia. Yes, I love that. That's brilliant. And it actually solves all of my problems because I listen to my audiobook in my car and mm-hmm. I can, I'm almost done with my 16 book series of Wheel of Time. It's been two years, mm-hmm. like <laughs> decades of listening to it. So I don't have anything else to do in my car now. Anyway. Yeah, it's almost like a little audiobook. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) So if you ever need ideas again, we'll have you on and then we'll talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I always give credit. So, I mean, we have this um, children's book that we published. It's called The Nightingale Tale and it's um, the musical version. It's on Amazon. 
and it wasn't, we weren't trying to do a children's book. We just um, did this amazing premiere in 2018 and it had illustrations and it was brilliant and it just made itself. And so what we did is recorded the piece and put it on a QR code inside the book with narration, a QR code without narration and bell tones so you can read to your kids and then a QR with just the music. And I say this to say that that these organic ways of things coming out is, is what's really, really impactful. And yeah. I also had another reason to say that, and I can't remember what it was. <laughs> oh, just that I was, I was reading the book to HSPVA high school seniors who just, it looks like a kid's book, but it, they loved it. And one girl had an idea to make it a coloring book. And, and so now when we're doing the coloring book, I've got her name in there. You know, I just, it's really important that these schemes connect. And so yeah. if I do start an audiobook, I will definitely put you in the credits of that for sure. Great idea. Well, we appreciate Great it. Idea. I mean, and I, yeah. I love that too, like talking about like letting things develop organically because mm -hmm. I've, I think that's one of the biggest things that I've noticed like starting Hero is like things just kind of happen to you and you have to roll with the punches <laughs> yeah. and you have these random ideas and you're like, whoa, why not do it? Why not act on it? You know, figure it out, go along, figure it out along the way, even mm -hmm. if you don't know how to do it Im immediately. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've learned. And I, I get the feeling that that's probably going to be the norm for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, what I'm realizing is while I do like to talk about things, what helps me is being, you know, riff, riffing off with people. Like mm -hmm. this sounds gross, but I sort of feed off people and their energy in a good way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of having podcast guests, you have um, podcast thought partners. Mm -hmm. That would be, you know, it's like audiobook podcast partners. I don't know. That's such a cool, okay, I'm, I'm really going down a hole here. I'm no, I, I, I love it. And I love it when it's these conversations happen. just take just on happen. their whole life. Yeah. It's, it's so exciting because <laughs> I always leave talking to people for the podcast, Hero Talk, and just being like, oh, that was so amazing. These women are so cool. I'm so like excited that I get to talk to them. And I, I, I'm, this is just making me really excited. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, get back to what you were going to ask. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Well, my next question was, when, what was the moment when you decided, I'm going to start Roco? Like, how did that start? What were the first steps? It was truly, I was ready to quit the oboe and be a real estate agent because I had my kids here. My parents were here now. I, I loved our city in all aspects. I deeply embedded myself in the city. Um, as Alicia versus as an oboist. And that was a big thing I talk about in my, in my talks. Um, just that, um, I, I didn't feel like I could integrate my musical self with who I was in other areas, you know, and I never like to say I'm an oboist. I'm always like, I'm a musician or anyway, I, I I'm saying that to say, I just felt like that part of me was compartmentalized and was not going to thrive here in Houston. And so I was ready to kind of close that chapter and be a real estate agent because I love to sell things and <laughs> I, I can sell anything. I love raising money. It's, it's awesome. Um, and I'm kind of fearless about that and sometimes obnoxious about it. But um, I saw, actually saw the drawings of my church. That was this, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright style building. It's gorgeous, um, unusual shape worst acoustic in Houston with carpet and everything. And they were going to gut the entire thing, keep the way it was and really build it out for the new organ they bought. So it was going to be done acoustically wonderfully. And when I realized that everything on the dais, everything up there was going to be movable. That's when I, it was like, this is the venue because Houston, we've actually played in, in 18 years in Rocco in 65 venues in Houston. 
Wow. 65. Did not know that. I mean, I knew we all over the map were nomadics, kind of part of our brand for our chamber music. We take you on a tour of your city. But the reason the other three groups hadn't thrived is because there was not a home, um, a good home, right? Or a place that had the acoustics and the, all this stuff. And when I saw there was a venue, that's when I was like, okay. And, and frankly, I mean, I'm going to be really vulnerable here. It was a place, it was my church. I'd been involved for 13 mm-hmm. years that, at that point. And it was a place of extreme acceptance for me and love and, you know, the ultimate um, love that hasn't, doesn't have requirements to it. And so I was in a place there. It was my safe space because so many terrible things had happened to me in our field that were so mm. beaten down and so tacky and nasty. And I just would not have been able to make something joyful and beautiful here without having it been in my safe place. And so being able to do it there and bring people in, not, and it, I'm not on a Christian mission here. I'm just saying for me, my journey was that that was my place. That was my, not just my safe place, but my place I could thrive mm. to bring people and invite them in became more of a relationship driven thing than a transaction thing. And so when I saw the drawings, it was start an orchestra. And I immediately thought of people I wanted to play with who smiled on stage, who were the top <laughs> players in the world. I mean, rare in our field, right? Mm. And who actually were vulnerable themselves on stage and didn't have this kind of, and we're not jerks. I mean, there are three things we don't do in Rocco. No jerks allowed <laughs> on stage, on the board, in the donors. I fired a donor before. Oh, wow. Um, there, you know, there are no, um, we don't do background music as a brand. Nobody puts baby in the corner. We're in dialogue with you in connection. You know, you can't mm-hmm. ignore me. And, and I don't, and I actually don't mean that rudely. I just mean as a brand, we don't do that. And then number three, we don't chase funding with programming, which means we don't mission creep at all. It's not, you know, somebody's like, I'll give you $10,000 if you go do this. Like, well, that's not what we do. And it's going to cost more than 10,000. And we already have all this plan that we'd like for you to sponsor instead. So those are the three like bright lines things that we that. don't do and yeah so when we started it was really just who do I want to play with and so half the orchestra is here half is from all over it just worked out that way mm. um and it takes a unique player to play here I mean you have to play at the top level but you have to really be a collaborative very opinionated person which is hard <laughs> to find yeah I have a question about kind of continuing that that idea of things happening organically and starting things you know um I've worked with organizations that are afraid to start new things. And then I've also worked with organizations that do too much too fast. And, and then like everything's a chaotic scramble because they have all these great ideas, but there's no structure in place. So how have you been able to find that balance? And I know you talked Mm -hmm. about like, once you had that venue, then you're like, Oh, perfect. And and you had a lot of stuff in place, but as you continue, have continued growing your organization, what does that look like? I wish I could show you a picture and maybe you, you could put it up on the i'm very open about our money and things like that i wish i could mm. find it um we're hyper growth model in the fact that we basically raise our budget um almost a hundred thousand dollars every or one hundred fifty thousand a year starting the first year at one hundred fourteen thousand, and now we're at 2.2 million and wow. it's just this idea of um what people are free to do in our field i'm trying to find the picture just for your benefit i'll text it to you later but um what are people are free to do in our field is do an expense budget first instead of um, donation. A lot of people say, okay, here's the amount of money I think we can raise. What are we going to do with it? And Mm -hmm. that's completely backward from a growth model. Instead, it's what do you think strategically you need to do the next year? Do you have a good idea? Do you have something else? How is it shaking out? And then you, you, in your own mind, go, well, maybe we'll wait a year to do that or that. And so I'm definitely one of those artistic directors that has ideas all the time, Mm -hmm. but is realistic 
not in a bad way realistic, but just like, okay, here's what we can probably, the opportunity growth tolerance, right? Um, and just knowing where we could possibly get the money, even from the beginning without other people. Um, I had a board member early on tell me, why don't you raise $50,000 more a year so you have extra money every year and you start kind of putting it back, not saving it, but having a reserve every year. And I didn't think that was unusual, right? <laughs> That's incredibly unusual. Um, and now we have a discipline of that that we've been able to you know, continue to grow at that rate. Um, and, and I don't think we're growing for growth's sake, which is another danger in our field. Mm. We're not trying to get bigger just to get bigger. We're trying to find ways that match the trajectories of our strategic plan. And I know that it's a lot of things. People don't have a clue what a strategic plan is. And we not only operate to it, we live it. And we have our every three years, a new strategic plan that keeps us on this path that has been clear from the beginning because I've had a very clear idea of what we've done. I mean, shaping the future of classical music has been that forever. It's just what we do. And then we think about shaping the future for classical music, how? For our audience, for our musicians in our industry, and that's how we do it. And then we have all these tentacles of those and how certain initiatives fit into that. So when you're able to show that and show you've tracked that for all these years, people are willing to step in with you. I mean, we have 90% mm -hmm. donor retention. Um, out of our 2.2 million that we are doing now, I raise with my team 93% of that. Yeah. So ticket sales cover less than 7% of our budget. Right. Completely backward from our model. I mean, the model is usually 40% ticket sales, 60% donation. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is it keeps you out there connecting people to your, your product in a very investment way where you know, they'll I connect people to dollars where you can support Roco through naming a chair or support Roco through naming our commissioning consortium or these kind of ways of pulling people in and having them feel ownership of what you do. And that way, if they donate a certain amount, they get tickets. So tickets are not transactional. They're more here, come to my house for dinner and feeling to it. Mm -hmm. It's just backward. Yeah. And that brings Did me that, to a point. that answer your question? <laughs> I don't know if it, I does, it does. It does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not in the way that I expected, but it definitely does answer that. Yeah. It, I think that you make a good point about like knowing what a strategic plan is and how to keep donor, you know, and keep up donor relations. Cause I know that's something that I've struggled with because like, no one teaches you this. So that, <laughs> nope, <nobody>. so <laughs> I wanted to know like who taught you, how did you figure this out? <laughs> I am a massive extrovert, as you probably can tell, and I love people. I, I truly, I seriously feed on their energy. <laughs> it's my favorite thing in the world. Um, I just love all people, a nine-year-old to 99-year-old. And I think that's also what's permeated Roka's culture in that we don't, we don't have the ageism issue that our field does, um, where I think our field does not value the old people. And I, I think it's a real problem. They're the ones that have the money and the time to spend with you. And there's these efforts to bring in new audiences younger. Um, in my opinion, people in their 20s and 30s are looking for a mate and a job. And that is their focus. And if they come, great. If you're nice to them and, and they have a great time, they'll come back in their 40s and 50s when they have time and money. And so mm -hmm. that's kind of where I'm at with those. And I, I say that to say I don't answer questions directly. So I need to be here from <laughs> What, wait, what was your question one more time? <laughs> I was asking you, like, how did you figure out what a strategic plan oh, was, yeah. how to work on donor yeah. relations? Like, how did you how did you learn that? Because I know we when we briefly talked on the phone, we we're like, Juilliard, music schools, they don't teach you this stuff. <laughs> Not even close. OK, so I wrote it down this time so I can remember. <laughs> like, off piece, as you know. Um, as far as strategic plans, I mean, that was just um, realizing that the other groups I was in had absolutely no plans. I mean, mm. zero plan. Not even a 
next year we'll do this, right? And then when I first started, just having spreading out the season, knowing I've told you before, you know, having your budget that has your line item, even if you're not paying yourself, these things that are aspirational written down so people know where you're headed. And and I can't tell you many people I coach that that say, oh, well, I'm going to do one concert and see if it works. I'm like, it's not going to work. I mean, you can have 50 people come and they liked it, but that's not a series. That's not an organization. That's not... So you have to have kind of, and I've told you this, you cast the quest. You have to have a quest that they're going on with you. You have to have the journey that they're going on with you. And so I've just learned that from observations of the other groups and seeing um, and talking to people. And then I realized that really it's just going to take going to coffee, coffee, lunch, lunch, coffee, wine, carpool, maybe carpool and then wine every day for 17 years. I mean, that's basically what this is. And it is relational. And I just did one this morning with Frost Bank and I'm going to do one this afternoon. And there's there's no end to it, right? Mm-hmm. There's no end to it. Um, and so you just have to be comfortable and happy doing that. If you're not, you've got to find somebody that is happy doing that and partner with them. And I don't mean hire a development director because I, I just hired a development director in 2020, okay? And we've been in existence, how many years is that? 15 years mm-hmm. without a development director. It was me. And I know that's unusual for an artistic director to ask for money. I mean, I, again, love doing that. But it also helps because I'm the one passionate about the product that people yeah. care about. And yeah. so anyway, you have to have a good partnership. And I made a huge hire, I guess, in season eight, maybe season five. Um, this woman, Terry Golis, who was head of marketing for MD Anderson Cancer Center here, and she was supposedly retiring trying a part-time job with me, which turned into a monster job. And she helped me with, you know, learn strategic planning. I had um, four good board members who were just nailed me with strategic planning and bylaws and make sure, you know, you do this. And, and so in a way, instead of learning it from a class, which is kind of hard to do, you learn it by finding people who tell you no, Mm -hmm. and that have skills you don't have and bringing them into your circle whether that's on the board, advisory board, or in your performance organization. I do caution people that are a performing arts group to not use their artists on the board. I do have a liaison of artists on the board, one person, but it is the board is there for skills, expertise that your musicians don't have. And there's no way if the musicians are at the highest music level that they can have the highest possible accounting ability or the highest possible mm. strategic planning account. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Like if you want your musicians and your whatever's to be the highest level artistic on stage, then you want your board and the people that work with you to be their highest level in their field. That's a huge mistake I see in our field. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. I never thought about that. How do you handle such a big leadership role? It seems like having your team is really important and you, you and I definitely know what that's like. I think that was like the first step for me starting here. I was like, I need to find someone who actually wants to do this with me. Um, so how do you balance what you do versus what your team does? That's been, it's honestly the daily conversation. It is actually the most, I never thought I would talk about this every day for 18 years. It is truly <laughs> not, there's not a day that goes by. I just talked to my managing, uh, my executive, not, no, she's managing director. I just talked to her about the assistant marketing person and who's doing the program next year. I, yeah, there's there's no end to it, of div- especially when you have more people. I mean, when you have two people, you're like, well, I'm not doing that. You're doing that. Or, you know, <laughs> or or even three people. It's still there's no end to that conversation and there'll never be an end to it. There's too mm-hmm. many pieces. We do too many things, honestly, um, even with 
a small team of seven full-time staff, it's still not enough to really, even though we don't have a full-time orchestra, we have a full-time entity. So we have about 16, 17 concerts a year, plus donor events, plus private salons and things like that. And so that's kind of something every week or two that we're building up for, um, you know, with a, with a pretty small budget, right? Like our budget should probably be 4 million, honestly, for the amount of stuff we're doing and the quality of what we're doing and the live streaming and the recording and the broadcast and all that, but it's not. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's been, that's been hard to figure out who does what I, I will sell. Mm. I don't have any solution for it other than it's messy and you need to always <laughs> talk about it. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been seeing that you have to be flexible. You got to go with the flow a little bit. <laughs> yes. I was going to say too, it's important. It's been important to me to make sure that, when you hire, like if you're going out to hire a marketing person or whatever role you think you need to fill, always be flexible in who you pick to fit them, fit the role to them versus vice versa. Um, if you realize the person you hired is better at marketing than development, go find a development person, you know, like find ways to grow your organization. I, I mean, like first I'd get a generalist, right, that was able to help me split up stuff and then you can start hiring more specifically later on. But at first it's like, so I don't know how to do marketing well. Okay, well, then maybe we should hire a, a hourly somebody to come in four hours a week to help. But you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Don't be so rigid on your roles that you are like, I need a development director. And you're like, well, maybe that's not what my organization needs right now. Because I tried a couple of grant writers. and They were terrible. They don't know my organization. <laughs> so for many years, I wrote my own grants because they don't know how to write what I do, which is completely mm -hmm. different. The way we do and talk about Ropo is not normal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's not about the music. It's about the people involved that are doing the music. So, yeah. So uh, when you first, going back to when you first started Roco and kind of that you had a small budget, um, like right now Hero is really volunteer based. So, you know, we'll pay our musicians and, and, you know, photographers who come to our events and that sort of thing. But like everybody on the board, like we are all doing this because we believe in the mission and, and you know, we're, we're all volunteering together to do this. So then at, how would you at some point transition that into, you know, maybe like part time paying people to lead things and then, you know, making that full time positions? Yes. I, so first you just need one person that's paid, mm. you know, Darian needs to get paid. Yeah, Darian <laughs> needs to get paid. I keep saying that. <laughs> you, you have to, you have to, because people aren't going to give you money if you're not professional. And if you yeah. are doing it for free, it's a hobby that mm. just hands down. If you're trying to pay your musicians, hand, great, because so many people don't. And I just get livid about that. I'm mm -hmm. like, you don't oh, start an organization to. if you don't. Yeah. I know. Well, I'm just saying <laughs> there are people who try not to and don't. Um, there's a, famous chamber orchestra in LA right now that's getting in trouble for not, you know, paying not just the musicians, but especially the composers. And mm, wow. it's just, it's inexcusable to me, but it's also inexcusable that the person, like I said, even though I have for three years with Roco, I didn't get paid. I put a line item and it said $0 and the strategic plan had me paying, getting paid in the third year, you know, um, uh, you've got to do that. <laughs> I was Good. like, oh, you're three. I'll pay myself. Miranda's like, no. <laughs> so you should, you should pay, you should at least have something in there. I mean, if you're paying your musicians again, great. Um, mm -hmm. As far as who to hire and all that, I mean, honestly, I was by myself for three or four years and then mm -hmm. I had an assistant barely for part-time to help me do some paperwork and then it grew. Mm -hmm. So, but you've got to have one person paid like that. The board's not going to get paid. The board is a board and mm -hmm. the board maybe shouldn't be your artists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You should go get 
the guy who owns the coffee shop down the road and or whoever is really passionate about what you do. And the bigger you get, the higher up you can get the people who are joining your board, you know, like, like I now have people who could give me $75,000 individually. Never in my life. I mean, you know, it used to be $750 was like a huge number for me when I first started. Mm -hmm. Um, So it takes time to build that and definitely have term limits three years period, get them off or re re up. They, we have three, three years is the term limit and they can re up one time. So six years is the max they can spend on the board. Oh, that's good to know. Did not know that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fracture Atlas has some good, I think, I think some good guidance there on things like that for bylaws that are term limits and how you have different classes. So you have three different classes of people that rotate on and off the board. Um, yeah, we do have bylaws, so. but um, mm-hmm. I do know that they'll probably have to change at some point. <laughs> yeah, and they do, and you have to vote on them and get them changed. Yep, that was a fun process, learning the legal jargon and things like that um, for a 5163. I hate it. I, hate it. I, I totally hate it. And it's not my skill set, truly. <laughs> well, so now I, I have Amy Gibbs, who does all the other stuff that I don't want to do, like like Excel, nice. Excel spreadsheets for the budget that it's extremely complicated now for us oh, and mm-hmm. the, the accrual method and I'm like I'm good at math but I don't care I'm like <laughs> what cash do I need to get and I'm done yeah that's that's also a good point I, I very much sympathize with that because I'm trying to do some of that right now and I'm like oh this sucks <laughs> um I also wanted to kind of talk about since you know this is here to talk about women in classical music have you ever felt unwelcome in a leadership in the leadership space since you're a woman um, I don't know if it was a woman. I think it was the level of orchestra. Um, so the first couple of years I started it and I won't say what big city that's about three miles from me. <laughs> that there, there's symphony orchestra. I mean, I'm in it, but um, so orchestras are, are in classes. There's a group one mm-hmm. all the way down to group eight. Right. And that means how your budget size is. Mm-hmm. Uh, chamber orchestras, you kind of bump up a little because they know your, your budget size is not going to be as big. And so, when we first started, obviously, we were in group eight, which is community orchestras that don't get paid and things like that. And so I didn't have a lot in common um, because I'm hiring, you know, the top players in the world to come in and play. But they were also just so gracious and awesome. But what happened is I would go, I went to the league conference, which is, you know, where all the orchestras come in. And I knew a head of a guy who was head of group one orchestra. And I tried to go over and talk to him and say hi. And he was in like a group of men and he truly physically shut me out of the, of this. It was truly like I was on a playground. Mm -hmm. And then I I don't think that was a woman thing. I Mm -hmm. I don't, I didn't feel that way at all. I felt like it was a, you know, you're just little peon orchestra kind of thing instead. Um, But as far as I've never felt the woman thing. That's good. I just haven't. I mean, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. In fact, I was on a panel one time with a guy. I won't tell you who it was, but it was a woman conference. And the women in the audience asked, we were having a conversation about family and and work. And I'm just like, that would never happen at a male conference. But um, it did. And the woman asked about, you know, how do you balance being a mom and, you know, and your career? And on the panel were five women and him. And he raised his hand to answer the question. Um, no, not for <laughs> and, you. And we were all, I was all like, excuse, I actually did. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> and he answered for his wife or something like that. And I was like, good Lord. No. Mansplaining <laughs> to the nth degree, right? So, um, you know, little things like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing too bad. I've had actually had it worse 
there's so many women now that it's great because if you mm-hmm. run into one woman who's kind of witchy, you don't judge all women based on that, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I've, I ran into a composer, a female composer who was just obnoxious and, you know, she was trying to get mentor help from me. And she was upset that her, she was, she was upset that she was included on the Institute for Composer Diversity Project, which was, I know at first, I don't know if you know about that, but yeah. it's mm-hmm. awesome. This guy tried, to, right. So Rob tried innocently to put people in classes so people like me as artistic director could find new music it was a great job and it was so hard and he made some seriously big mistakes that he was like I didn't mean to do that let me correct this let me help you know Mm -hmm. and and so everybody just tried to cancel him honestly and tried to get really angry instead of him he's like I'm happy to change whatever I'm just trying to help right and so this young lady composer was very upset that he had put her music on his site and I said well look how do you expect me as an artistic director to find you and she goes well that's not the problem I said yes it is and she goes well he just can't put it up there and I said well he can't but when you're dead he can Mm -hmm. and it was I was Mm -hmm. like you know come on I don't understand the bristling of this when people are just trying to help so that's what I run into sometimes with the women Mm -hmm. um that finding offense where none was meant and, and that's that's difficult for me because I understand offense when it needs to be offense. But when it's somebody just trying to get yourself out there, I have a real problem with that. Yeah. And I remember when I talked to you that um, I loved that you kind of called me out. You're like, you said, in my opinion, like three times, you said, <laughs> I'm sorry, like four. And it, it like I remember it resonated with me. And I still remember that because as like a woman in a leadership role, you have to be confident enough to be assertive and to not shy away from what you think and what you want to do. So how did you learn to be the leader that you are and how do you help other women coming up to be more confident and be more assertive as a leader? Well, I told you we have a sorry jar in our office that if you oh. say you're sorry, you have to put a dollar in. You can cuss all you want, but you can't say sorry. Um, I like getting that, that out of your vocabulary is difficult. Just like I said at the beginning of this call, I said, thank you for your patience instead of I'm sorry. I've started to practice that. Mm-hmm. If you're late somewhere, don't say I'm sorry for being late. You say thank you for your patience, and it really just transfers gratitude mm-hmm. rather than you know. Um, and <laughs> the other word that's a little insidious is the word just. Mm-hmm. If you use that in your emails, notice how many times you use it. I'm just writing to ask you this question. Uh, just ask the question. Yeah. Um, or I'm just trying to say. And just is a very demeaning word that we use more often than we think we do. I never thought um, about just. And I, yeah, just is a bad one. And then, like you said, in, in my opinion, I mean, the fact you're stating something, it is your opinion. So you don't need to say in my opinion. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, I have to do that too. I, I get it out. My husband has a habit of saying, to your good point. He says it all the time <laughs> with people. If he's, to your good point. And I'm like, that's like, stop saying that. But um, it's just, that's 33 years of marriage talking right there. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so I think it's the, the way I learned it, my mom, my mom mm-hmm. always said, you know, if you want to strive to be the highest, then don't accept, you know, things. And she she always talked about body language and different things way, way earlier than it's been talked about now. Um, you know, women need to take up more space. You know, notice how much space your arms take up on the table when you have a meeting, how much space you take up with your items. Make sure you actually take a little more space than you need. Um, you know, don't want to like flare your legs if you have a dress on but you know <laughs> that you've got to kind of take up space and that's a good that, point that's too. a tough one mm-hmm. it's a tough one and you take up space with your voice I learned to do that on the radio I know that I had to have a tiny bit of bass put in my voice and so I learned to speak differently on the radio um 
now I don't feel like I have that anymore, but I do resonate deeper than I used to mm-hmm. so that there's a little more power behind my voice. That I totally I get. <laughs> With podcasting, I had someone actually comment. They're like, since you're women doing this, you should try to try not to be so giggly. And like, you know, you might want to consider speaking lower, which I didn't take all of that to heart, but I remember thinking, maybe I should talk with a little bit more oomph in my voice. <laughs> yeah. And oomph is not the same as low. And I, yes. that's what I mean. It's just a little bit more direct. And all that really is, is, is vocal leads. I mean, it's, I was a voice ma- minor in, at SMU and, you know, you learn about vocal fry, which is terrible. Oh, and I'm just doing this. You know, I just, I cannot stand that. <laughs> and all that is, is airstream. It's just like your instrument. It's just an airstream situation mm-hmm. um, of actually just producing a good sound with your voice. And that's really what I mean. Not becoming a man in your voice, but be, being a resonant sound, no matter what your sound is, is really all I'm talking about. That's great. So a lot of what you're talking about reminds me of my teaching. <laughs> I spent a lot of time teaching children. And so I spent a lot oh. of time because I don't like yelling. I, I like physically cannot yell at children, uh, but I will like, I have to project over them sometimes to tell them to be quiet. Yeah. And so then there's something yeah. that happens in my voice. It doesn't get lower because I'm incapable of doing that, even if I wanted to, but like there is, and I can't do it now into the mic, but there is, a, there is something that happens where I like project yep. my voice over them. Um, and then yes. something that you're talking about taking up space and, and not apologizing and that sort of thing. That's something I've been trying to actually instill in some of my kids, even as young as like five or six, like, okay, when yep. we're going to go on stage, cause you have the concert, I want you to take up space. So make sure that you're, you know, you're, feet are under your shoulders and that when you put your violin up you're standing nice and tall and not just for posture um and no sound slouching. yeah and and that is for posture and sound but not just for that but also like it's gonna make you feel confident I promise if you like use a lot of bow you know you don't use your tiny bow that's gonna make you feel confident and so um I don't know how much teaching you do but um how do you recommend like instilling that in the next generation men and women really early or boys and girls I guess at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a I had a guy I had a guy I had to do it too I used to have him stand in kimasai stance which is horse riding stance for karate to play <laughs> you know mm. seriously and then and then what I will do in, in lessons I mean I used I used to teach I miss it a lot but I just mm-hmm. can't um but I would actually if they said I'm sorry I had them scream I'm not sorry oh. after it ah, okay. so you know? I, I could have used and, that. I mean, <laughs> I'll do I it mean, they, And there's some things they do that they should apologize for. And then I'm like, yeah, you should apologize for that. But right. <laughs> not, not your playing right. and not your yeah. stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, no, I make, I make him do it. It became a really funny thing. Uh, <laughs> it, it gets you out of your head and into that space. Yeah, I think that's an important thing. Just taking mm-hmm. up space. I think luckily y'all's generation does have seats at the table in places you haven't. I will tell yeah. you there's two fun things next season. Uh, we have a piece called A Woman Without Apology that's being premiered in next <laughs> April. I love that. So cool. Yeah, yeah Connie Ellisor. And then there's a piece uh, by Do- Richard Daniel Poor, actually. He is do- he's our composer in residence next year. And he's writing a triptych of the Divine Comedy, but he's also doing mm-hmm. a piece based on the Iranian women's uprising. Um, mm-hmm. His mom's Iranian as, he, as mm-hmm. he is. So he, I suggested he write the piece for the women of Rocco, Half Hour Orchestra's Women. So he's writing it for me, Kristen, who's the bassoonist, Brooke Flute, a soloist, and then some a chamber string mm-hmm. ensemble behind us. And we're doing it at Asia Society. Uh, but I think that that's just really interesting, too, is just finding those spaces to make an impactful statement, not just a. And in the whole woman without apology thing, I make sure I talk to Connie to say, hey, look, I don't I just personally don't want a piece about being angry. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's space for that and you need to find those places, mm-hmm. but I don't want a piece that is 
all about I hate men. I don't. No. I, I think it needs to be the problems and the solutions. Yeah. Fine. I mean, mm-hmm. we did a sex trafficking piece and it was hard. Mm-hmm. But at the end, there's I'm not saying I have to always end on major, but there's always <laughs> got to be a, a way through. And in the Holocaust Museum concerts, too, there's there just needs to be those, this glimmer of hope. Again, even if it, it doesn't have to end like Disney does it, but it has to have some sort of of what do we grasp onto to keep moving forward mm-hmm. is the way to say it. Yeah. And I think this transitions into um, Rocco as a chamber orchestra that I've noticed because you're extremely innovative and prolific and you play a lot of new music. And I actually found that you were named as the number one ensemble in the U.S. performing works by women and the second for composers of color, which is super exciting. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask, how were you able to facilitate audiences that would respond to music outside of the classical canon? <laughs> yeah, because when I first started doing the new music, it was, you know, a couple of my stodgy people and they weren't necessarily old. Um, mm. Didn't want to, you know, they're like, oh, no, here's the here's the scary new piece. And what was really funny, I discovered I had an accidental discovery where I couldn't decide what the order of the concert should be until the very last second. So whatever order we published, we just wound up not doing it in that order. So I said, well, why do we even put an order? And so a lot of our concerts, we don't put the pieces in order. And so what happened is people didn't know when the scary new piece was coming. They were ready for Mozart and oh, not Mozart, you know, or something. <laughs> and that was really fun discovery that it kept them open to receive and it put them in a state of curiosity. And mm-hmm. so our big thing, which, you know, here's one of <laughs> I'm our like new things, ideas, new yeah. ideas. <laughs> Oh, Cults, cultivate. Mm. That was like season 15, I think. And it's still my favorite slogan, cultivate curiosity. I only seek people who are curious. They not, need not know. They need not know nothing. They do not need to know anything about <laughs> classical music mm. to come to us and see it through our lens. Because what our lens is, is more like come to dinner at my house and, and eat the food I make. I'm not, I'm, I'm not a restaurant you order at. And I think that's the difference. Um, and I say that all around the fact that the new music was easy because new music is from living people. Mm-hmm. And when you really lean into the leaning into the live person mm-hmm. and not just a pre-concert talk, but more about who they are and why, and that the pieces have meaning. They're not some random. And most of our pieces have some stories. Some, some don't, and that's fine. I'm not requiring that. But when you call a composer, which my favorite thing to do is to call them and say, okay, what's your passion project you've not been able to do yet? Who are you? What is it that you want to create? And a really good example of that is John Wineglass, who's a Hollywood composer. He's writing a piece for us. And we were visiting, this was like about six months ago on Zoom. And he was talking about how he's been in Canada and starting to be really ingrained in the native population there and some passion that he has about that. And I was telling him about a study my church did called, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's called yet. That was about race relations in the lens, through the lens of the Episcopal faith. And it was very impactful and very um, call to action kind of thing, but it wasn't just about black and white. It was about Asian, every possible race. It was very deep and detailed, right? So I had just gone through that and he was dealing with that. And I said, you know, it'd be really fun if you could explore a piece. And he said, you know what I've always been wanting to write about is, and we said the same word at the same time, <laughs> sacred ground. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was, I still get chills telling the story. And, and it was so cool because now he's writing this piece that's going to have something that, that is so passionate for him, but it means something to me. And, and no one has to care, but that is how people 
in the audience are won over, right? Also how they're won over is you can tell them they can hate it. That's what I do. I tell an audience, you have Mm -hmm. the absolute agency to dislike any of these pieces, including Mozart. And Mozart, I usually don't like to hear Mozart because most people play it incredibly boring. But (laughs) in in like 99% of the world doesn't even know how to say Mozart. They say Mozart, and it's not their job to know. It's our job to tell them it's pizza. Mozart is pizza. And so, yeah, so those kind of invitational ways to explore, have agency, and agency is a big deal in what we do to have agency to um, have your own experience to have some knowledge of who's writing it which is more important frankly than why they're even writing it or what it even means mm-hmm. and and have that human connection is is a really big deal and be be in a, be in a state of curiosity mm. It's so exciting you give me so many cool ideas already because <laughs> <laughs> I love changing Yay. um like what the expected order of programs are. And I love how that takes it to like even the next step, like just don't tell them what the order is. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Right, right. Yeah. You don't, you don't. And then timings of pieces. Please put timings of pieces in the concert program. I cannot stand it. I don't want to hear a new piece without knowing how long it is. Mm. I, I, If it's an hour, fine. If it's five minutes, fine. But don't do that. Mm. Because if I don't know what the expectation of the piece, I don't even know what the arc of the piece is. It just. Mm. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. It's a very big deal to have timings of pieces in the program and yeah. pronunciation guys, of course, but I made a huge mistake and it's a hilarious one and I'm probably going to have to wrap up in a second. But yeah. what's hilarious is Bruce Adolph wrote me a piece during the pandemic because I'd premiered a piece of his, um, I guess I literally March 8th, right before the pandemic shut down 2020. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a piece during the pandemic for me and for me and strings. And it was based on his experience in, in the pandemic where it was times of doldrums and times of panic. Mm-hmm. And it, it it sounds really, it's a very interesting piece, but it's like 16 minutes long. Okay. Well, in the program, I put that it was six minutes. Long. Oh no. <laughs> and it mimicked the monotony of the pandemic <laughs> and my husband was like I literally was trying to crawl out of my own skin <laughs> so, so it can work both ways it can, mm-hmm. if it's six minutes and it's 16 oh don't do that oh. it's better that you put 16 and it's six so. right <laughs> oh that's funny um yeah. one thing I definitely have to ask you before you go is I think it's amazing and honestly quite iconic that you guys use a pay what you wish model and I want to know is how does this look for Roco? And do you think more ensembles should implement this model? Well, it's hard to immediately go there because if you're basing your budget on the fact you have to have ticket sales, mm-hmm. that's hard, right? If that's your model, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to convince a board that, I mean, this is kind of a, you know, going commando <laughs> in some ways. Um, but yeah, I've always wanted to do that from the beginning and not value ticket sales um, as part. And I always said to my board, even from the beginning, ticket sales are bonus money, but had that line item in there and you know so it's not insignificant so yeah i i had always wanted to do that and our number one value is access and if we're invitational and not transactional one of the best ways to do that is say here come as my guest or come and do what you want to do right we really haven't lost any money i mean our tickets are 35 dollars so very inexpensive and 35 or 45 but yeah and if you if you do a pay what you wish more than once or twice and i know you can afford it I will absolutely take you to coffee and ask you for money. <laughs> and that's a threat. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it. It's like if you, if, if, and I think if people understand that the tickets price does not support anything that we do, then they understand it's, it's a, 
gesture. It's like, yes, let me pay yeah. for what I'm coming to experience, but that's not really making a dent in support of this organization. Mm-hmm. And it really speaks home because if you pay $120 for a ticket, it's still not enough, you know, and the biggest thing you'll need to know, our field is not in demand. The product we have is not in demand. Economic model is if there's no demand, <laughs> the price cannot be high. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't really keep charging more and more and more for tickets because the product isn't in demand. And I think that's what we got to get in our head that we really are. And I'm not saying we're a charity case and I'm not saying we have to be ingratiating. I'm saying we need to have gratitude and we need to be bold and asking for support. Mm, That's a really good point. Yeah. I remember you said that to me before. And as much as that's a tough pill to swallow because you, we see the value in classical music. Mm -hmm. It's, it's true. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, you've got you to have people who want what you have to give you money or buy mm-hmm. tickets. So For sure. Mm-hmm. But we thank you so much for everything. Yeah, for, thank you for yeah. being here. And yeah. I know that you're probably crazy busy, so thank you for making time for us in your busy schedule. Mm-hmm. No, this is so important. It's a big part of my life is wanting to um, – we have a policy of in, up, and out for women, like especially in our office. Mm-hmm. You bring them in, you lift them up, and you throw them out. Yeah. <laughs> or lift them out into throw a better place. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like lift in, up, and out. And I think that's really a passion of mine is like mm-hmm. is raising women leaders. So good well, I really luck for yours that. too. I'm excited. Yeah, thank you. Thank we you. we have a lot of things that we're planning to do now that we are close to a year old. Yeah. I'm really, um, you were talking about like planning like the next project. I have so many ideas. I'm so excited <laughs> to move forward on them. Uh, so I, I can't wait to see what Rocco does. I have to make a point to come to a concert cause I, I grew up in Texas and I, nice. I lived in San Antonio, so it wasn't like nearby, but yeah, <laughs> I've, no, I've, that's not nearby at all. <laughs> it's Texas, but you can live stream us for free. You know, yes, so I, really I do know that. And I love out. that. If you can just, I would really appreciate some shout outs to say, do you guys know about this organization? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that we live stream since 2013 for free, no, in six channels, all of our music, thousands of tracks on Spotify and listening rooms. Well, so. we'll definitely do Great. that. I love it. Yeah. And I, when I told people we're talking to you, they're like, oh, we love Roco. Yeah. <laughs> Aww, that's so sweet. Yeah. That's super awesome. Well, thank you well, so much. We'll tag, we'll, we'll tag you when you send it and um, I'll get it through our marketing person once it's oh, up. Great. Fantastic. So, thank you. Well, thank you so much. Um, we'll keep you in the loop for sure. And have a wonderful okay. rest of your day. Thanks. You guys too. All right. Bye. Bye. bye.